Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Adrian Guest, along with my co-host, Devin Dito. Listeners, March is Women's History Month, and last week was Equal Pay Day. We thought it would be a great opportunity to do an episode to advocate for for raising wages for women in our country. Also, we're joined by Mari Johnson, one of our journalist interns, who gave us this episode idea, and we thought it'd be great to have her on. So, Mari, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate you guys having me on today. Absolutely. You know, listeners, it's been nice to have interns this season because not only are they making our lives easier, but they're also enriching our episodes. So we look forward to bringing you more of these. But to go to something else, you know, March is about basketball. And we've been covering a story about a female basketball player, Brittany Griner. And we thought it would be a good way to kind of paint the picture for why women should have higher wages across all industries. So for our first segment, we wanted to talk a little bit about, like I said, Brittany Griner and why she was in Russia in the first place. So Russia has been a popular destination for WMA players like Brittany over the past two decades because of the money opportunities. With top players earning more than $1 million, that's nearly quadruple what they can make on a base salary in the WNBA, which honestly, when, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, cover a whole lot of sports stuff, but when I saw this, I was like, that is crazy to think that, you know, they're making a, you know, they have to go to some place like Russia just to actually make a decent income. And whenever you look into it even further, you know, the average salary in the WNBA in 2021 was about $120,000, which most people, that's a lot of money, but it's really not when you think about taxes, because I was around a lot of people in LA <laughs> who made $120,000. And that's just kind of like average, depending on where you live. And only about seven uh, of the league's players make what's called the supermax salary, which is $221,450. So only seven of them. And listeners, to give you some context, the minimum, and again, minimum, that means the lowest in case you're not, you know, you don't know what minimum means. That means the lowest salary in the NBA. That's the one with men is $925,258. So that's about four times the max that only seven players in the WNBA get. So, you know, Devin, I I know you follow sports a lot, so you may kind of know a little bit more about this and give some more insight to it, but that's just crazy. I mean, I, I get the whole idea that maybe more people, you know, watch the NBA or maybe there's more money and sponsorships or concessions or whatever the case may be, but come on, th- this is really a ridiculous statistic. I mean, it is, but it, it takes putting some context around that <clears throat> when you're having this conversation around comparing NBA salaries to those of WNBA players. And the problem is really the core of the problem is like, first off, before we get even further, is like people need to understand that we're not advocating for WNBA players to be making the same as like LeBron James and Kyrie Irving's in the NBA. We understand the numbers just won't work for that conversation. But the problem and why you're talking about the, you know, the average salary being 120,000. I mean, there are practice players in the NFL who are just on the practice team who make that, that type of money. And they're on the practice team. They're not playing in the games, not doing anything. They're just practicing and they're making the same amount of money as the average WNBA player. So, and, and the problem comes from the fact that the WNBA is only giving a roughly 20% of its revenue to its players. When you compare that to something like the NBA, where 50% of the revenue goes to the players, and the, uh, I think even the uh, Major League Baseball, it's higher than 50%. The NFL is somewhere in the high 40s. That's, that's where the problem is. 50% of the revenue versus 20% is a humongous difference. And just to kind of give everyone an idea of how big of a difference it would make if the WNBA decided to say, hey, you know what, we're going to go for, you know, better equality. We're going to raise the wages of our players and share the revenue at a, a even 50-50 split. That would take the minimum salary from, say, 120000 to 160000 And the cap would be 880000 rather than uh, the 221000 as what it is right now. So that would make a huge difference. The problem is revenue sharing. We're not expecting the WNBA to be pulling in the same amount of money as the NBA. 
I mean, the NBA is like 50 years older than the WNBA. So that's not even, again, it's just an apples to oranges conversation. But there are very real things that the WNBA could do better to make sure that players don't have to go across, you know, across the pond every single summer or every single winter to go make more money than what they do here in the States. It is sad. You know, here we are, the richest, most powerful country in the world, and we have our biggest, brightest, and best WNBA players having to go across to places like Russia to go make money, to go make a living. They have to basically work year-round, whereas in the NBA, they can actually get an off-season and go on banana boats and do all these different things because they do make so much more money Oh, you know, from what their league, you know, uh, generates. So that's really the crux of the problem when you talk about it. Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, it, I'm glad you gave a lot of uh, insight and perspective to the the revenue sharing because that's a big part of it. I mean, because I, I know that the WNBA as a whole, I can imagine it probably brings in a lot of money. I, I don't know what the total revenue of the league, you know, from year to year. Um, but I would imagine that, you know, that's a significant number. And like Devin said, listeners, uh, if we would, you know, give that more to the people who are actually contributing to making that all happen and not, you know, the others like owners or whatever else it goes to, um, that would make a difference. So, you know, Mari, you know, you probably, I don't know if you follow sports or anything like that, but I know that everyone's kind of been looking at this uh, Brittany Griner story. And I don't know if people realize that the reason why she was over there was because she was just trying to, you know, essentially make a better living. Um, and, you know, w- when you kind of think about that situation, you know, what, what did that kind of stand out to you and, you know, equal pay for women? So this situation in particular makes me think about, because I, I'm an athlete um, and I, I bowl for, I compete for FAMU's bowling team. Um, and so when you think about situations like this, thinking out of, about it from an athlete's perspective, especially a female athlete, uh, when you've been competing for so long, you can definitely see that there is a clear difference in, you know, how much men make versus how much women make when you're an athlete. Um, and when it comes to like the, the national, the Women's National um, Basketball Association, something that people have worked for their entire lives to get to, it's kind of a slap in the face to be paid less purely because of your gender when you are still putting in the work, putting in the effort to be an athlete versus the NBA players are getting paid significantly more than you. So, of course, you know, when you're uh, evaluating your assets as an athlete, uh, you might come to a decision where you're like, have to figure out what you want to do financially in your life. And um, it's it's really sad that a lot of people who want this professional lifestyle have to, you know, compromise their finances and even go to go to lens such as this of looking at other countries and wanting to go to other countries to compete. Um, so I think that definitely does open up the conversation of um, the wage gap in a whole different lens. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, I I mean, I was going to say embarrassing. Maybe that's a heavy word, but I think it it is embarrassing because America is such a prosperous nation with the resources to, you know, pay our people, you know, uh, who are doing these things because whatever in economics, one of the things that we studied was a superstar phenomenon is just the fact that people who are in that level of high wealth are able to do that because they're able to have some sort of skills, service, or product that they can get out to a mass number of people. And like Devin had talked about, you know, they're, they're, they're bringing in the revenue. They're not, they're just not, you know, being shared with it. And, you know, listeners, we, we just, you know, thought it would be a great idea just to kind of use something relevant that's happening. That's something serious. Cause I mean, her, her detention has been extended, I believe until the end of May is what we were reporting on. And with, with the things that are happening in Russia right now, who knows how they're trying to leverage this? Because I think I was reading one article where it was a significant amount that she had on her seemed like to where, um, you know, they're really trying to crack down on this cannabis and things like that. So um, we just thought it would be cool to kind of reference, you know, 
if she wouldn't, you know, if she was making, you know, even half of the minimum salary of the NBA, she wouldn't have even had to go to a place like Russia. And I'm not trying to say Russia's bad because I like my illustrator is Russian and I know the Russian people have nothing to do with Putin and what he's doing, but they wouldn't have to go to these places where the political systems are, you know, very uh, uh, unstable, uh, where there is a lot of conflict, you know, depending on, you know, what race you are. Because here in America, you know, fortunately, you know, uh, people aren't just, you know, abducting you and things like that all the time. So it's, you know, it's just sad to see that our uh, WNBA players have to go, you know, through links like this just to make some money. And listeners, um, that's not the only thing. Women in general have to go through a whole lot to make money, whether it be holding multiple jobs, putting up with a bunch of stuff. And we're going to talk more about that as we continue throughout this episode. Um, so what we're going to do, uh, Devin, did you, got, you have something you want to add? My bad. Yeah, I was just going to add to with this conversation is I do think I just wanted to say I do think that it is interesting that the WNBA has not gotten the sort of, you know, attention that the NBA gets. And I think some of it is because it is a female, you know, it's a female league. And I think there is a perception around the country that women in sports is not as, quote, entertaining. And I think that's part of the conversation as well, because we understand that advertising dollars is really what's driving the, the, the revenue that the NBA is getting. And so... The problem with the WNBA is people don't watch it. And I do know that there is a large percentage of the country that doesn't want to, quote, watch it because they think it's boring or they, you know, they can't dunk. And all of it is kind of has a sort of sexist tinge to it because, oh, they can't dunk. That means I don't want to watch it because it's boring. You know, it's like it's it's that when we can watch high school basketball and things like that with no problem. <laughs> but all of a sudden, when it comes to WNBA and it's women out there playing basketball, and just because you don't see dunks every play, all of a sudden it's boring and we don't want to watch it. But millions of people will tune in for a Major League Baseball game, and I think it's the most boring thing in the world. I'm sorry. Just on television, it just doesn't work. But people tune in. <laughs> and I think there is something with that, too, of because it is a female-dominated league, that people just don't want to support it necessarily. And that's part of the problem we're running into. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, um, Cause that's a really great point. Um, be- because if you don't support it, they're obviously not going to, you know, get the funds that they need because <laughs> that's, yeah, that's going to be the argument that they always have is that, you know, it's not as dominated as far as the, the money that they're bringing in. Um, and we just really have to show that, that special attention and recognition um, to what's going on. And I agree. Baseball is boring. I, I love golf. Can't do I, it. I, I love golf <laughs> like, as far as playing it, but watching golf is literally the worst thing on the planet. It's, I mean, it's, especially if you watch it on TV because you, you watch whole, you know, somebody hit hole one, two other people who hit hole three, then they'll skip to this hole. And it's <laughs> not even like an actual game. So I'm just but like, people tune in. Yeah, but people tune in. It's, it's so crazy to me. Um, but you've got women who are just really working uh, their tails off to make stuff happen uh, at odds, unlike their counterparts in the NBA who really get the life of luxury uh, and they're doing the same work day in, day out. So, man, listeners, this is a good episode. Uh, I hope that you are um, picking up some stuff on this um, because we got plenty more to give out to you. So stick with us. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give a few dollars while you're at it. After all, the Black Agenda Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Now let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into it. Our second segment where we really wanted to look at disparities for women. And when I was kind of, you know, thinking about this, uh, listeners, it's, it's interesting to kind of study because it's like when you look at the pay disparities, which is what we're talking about, you'll start to see that those pay disparities actually feed into a lot of different things when it comes to the finances of women in America. But let's start off with pay first. Women working full time earn about 80, uh, 82 cents for every dollar in men uh, per uh, for that men earn. And when you look at it on uh, on a gender basis, excuse me not gender, but racial basis, the breakdown is even worse than there, whether it be Asian women, white women, black women, uh, Pacific Islander, Hispanic, they're, you know, 
uh, different levels there. Um, you know, as you know, since we're a black centric show, we got to definitely make sure that we point the black rate out. Sixty three percent is what black women earned compared to what uh, white women earn. And, you know, I saw an interesting number here at the current rate of change that there wouldn't actually be pay equality until the year twenty one eleven. And I, I will definitely be dead and gone by that point. So that's interesting to kind of see that. Um, there's a lot of different things about the pay gap that talks about how different states, there's going to be some gaps there uh, or uh, varying with the gap. If you look at Wyoming, it's about 74.8%. You look at D.C., 92.9%. Um, so some places fare better. I'm sure you don't have a statistic in front of me, but I'm sure if you looked at places like Mississippi or your Arkansas, you'd probably see a lot lower statistic there. So, Devin, you know, when we try to frame this conversation of pay, you know, some people think about it like, you know, 82 cents for every dollar that men earn. That's not too bad. That's, you know, only 18 cents different, but that 18 cents, I mean, that's just the average. So in certain situations, like I said, if you're black or Hispanic, it's 63 to 58%. So it it really adds up over time. Oh, it absolutely does. I mean, if you asked any, just a regular person on the street and said, Hey, how about I take out 18% of your paycheck now from here on out, and you think they would be okay with that? The answer is no. I mean, most people would notice that 18% almost <laughs> immediately <laughs> out of every single check. And you add that up over 5, 10, 15 years, you'd be shocked at just how much that is. So the dollars are real. The effect is real. We can see it. I think, you know, a lot of we have made progress. And we want to say that, too. 82% used to be 62% back in 1979. So, I mean, we're talking roughly 20%. Um, of the gap has been closed. And some of that is actually just due to the fact that men's wages have gone down over the last uh, 40 years. And so that's part of the reason why the gap has closed, but also that, you know, women's wages have have increased. But no, I think it's real. And, it's, and when you talk about our community, the Black community, you have to have two people, usually two people in a household working, especially if you have children. It's just not reality to think you're going to be able to have one spouse staying at home and the other spouse going to work. This economy will not allow that. So when you think about one spouse is going out and he's getting you know, his full paycheck, the other spouse is going out and getting 18% less, or it could vary, but they're getting less than what he's getting for the same amount of education, skills, training, if you if you hold everything consistent, they're just getting less. That means that's less money to go in that household to help that child get whatever thing, you know, whatever things they need as money for college that could be being taken away. So it has very real effects that ripple outward. And it just doesn't mean that you go home with a little bit less money. As we're gonna talk about later, this this can impact your retirement debt, a host of other things and you know, Maury, I mean, you know, you as being our female panelist today, kind of, you know, what do you what have you heard about the gender pay gap and kind of what's your take on it's being, you know, a real thing that we can verify and just, you know, what's the what's your view of the conversation around it? Um, I know that. Uh, well, for me personally, my family, I was always kind of raised with the mentality of like, you're going to finish high school, you're going to go to college, you're going to get a job. And you're going to make money to bring back to the family to help the family in the future. So with that mindset in mind engraved into me, of course, the conversation of the wage gap had to be addressed where it's kind of like, okay, well, I know that I am going to make less money statistically than a male would. So it kind of makes you have to analyze all of your options. And that's like a really big factor when you're thinking of what you want to do in your in your life. Because whether or not, even if you go into a male-dominated field, statistically, you are still going to make less money than a male would. Um, So it's like a lot of different factors that go into it that is definitely um, discouraging, but it's also kind of like the reality. And it's something that as women, we try to strive against and advocate and make sure um, it's addressed so that in the future, hopefully our next generations will not have, you know, issues such as this. Right. I think 
it's a conversation that needs to be had because you've heard some people say, oh, the gender pay gap is a myth. And, you know, it's only because women choose to go into certain fields. And that explains part of it. That is true. Women do choose to choose, you know, tend to choose educational humanities majors, which tend to make less money. We all know the problem with teacher salaries. That is a female dominated, you know, occupation. If it was the reverse and there were men, more majority men who were teachers, I guarantee you we would not see the sort of pay uh, disparity that we see in teachers in education. But unfortunately, that's what tends to happen is there actually is research that shows if it is a female dominated you know, occupation and, it's, and wages tend to be lower, for instance. you know, So if you went into STEM and say more women went into STEM to where eventually the majority of the people who worked in STEM were women, wages would start to fall because it, women just tend to get paid more. And so those things are very real and we have to talk about it. And then, like you say, there are some other ways in which it can actually ripple out and affect people. So the pay gap also contributes to the wealth gap, which we've also talked about um, on the show. And so it makes it difficult for women to amass savings, build wealth and achieve economic security. And overall, the average woman has a net worth of about $5,500, which is less than half of the $12,000 average net worth of a man. And in terms of overall wealth, a single woman has only 32 cents for each dollar a man has and the wealth gap is even wider for women of color who have just pennies compared to the average white male. So, I mean, I don't know, Adrian, we've talked about it. Uh, this thing is is real. A lot of people don't believe it, but I, I it doesn't just stop and start with pay. It goes into wealth and a host of other things. Absolutely. I mean, if you if you're not paid, you know, comparable to what men are making, then then you, you don't have that that wealth potential. You can't use that money to go and invest, uh, go and you know buy rental property, go and start a business. I mean, the 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 ability to, to be an entrepreneur, the ability to be an investor is because you've got extra discretionary income. And I'm not trying to use big fancy words, but just that you've got extra money after you pay all your bills and stuff. You know, if you're, you know, that 18% that Evan was talking about, if you're getting that taken away from you just because you're a woman and then you've got another, you know, 20 to 30% because of uncle Sam or whatever. I mean, you are really kind of spending down your money. And when you think about, you know, how am I going to build wealth? How am I gonna, And if you think about women are a lot of times in single parent situations and you're trying to figure out how am I going to build wealth for myself, for my family and stuff like that. And I'm making less, it's tough, which leads to another point of debt. Uh, the consequence of this gap affect women throughout their lives. While women outpace men in earning bachelor's, master's, and advanced degrees, they take on greater debt to pay for their education. Women hold nearly two-thirds of the outstanding student loan debt in the United States, about $929 billion as of early 2019. Because of the gender pay gap, women have a harder time repaying loans, meaning women's debt burden compounds as time goes on. So that's a significant part, uh, listeners. I know some of y'all are probably paying some student loan debt, and some of y'all are probably women, and you're thinking this is tough. And that's why we're advocating for situations like this, because you can't prosper in America because we're a capitalistic society. You can't prosper in America without money. And that's why we need it. Um, Mari, one of the other things that we wanted to make sure to talk about were savings and how that kind of, you know, leads into that. Um, because a lot of people don't realize, like, like we've been talking about that, that pay, that wealth, the debt, savings is another aspect of how our women are being plagued by not getting paid well. Definitely. Uh, savings does affect the wage gap does affect savings because uh, it definitely follows when women into retirement as well. Um, as a result of lower, lower lifetime earnings, we'll receive lower uh, money in social security and pensions. Uh, this makes women collect only 80% of what men collect in social security benefits and just 76% in pensions. In terms of overall retirement income, um, women do tend to have only 70% of what men do. White men over 65, white men over 65 have an average annual income of $44,200 while white women over six, white women over 65 must get by on 23,100. Black women get even lower at 21,900 and Latinas 
the lowest at 14,800. So as you can see, um, the pay gap definitely does follow into multiple areas of our life, not only just our income from paycheck to paycheck, but all the way down to social security, pensions, and retirement plans. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, I worked in finance for five years. Uh, I worked primarily for an insurance company, but I did some financial advising uh, a little bit as well. And this, this, this money situation listeners, it's, it's, it's tightly woven together. It's, you know, just, you know, I know whenever you hear this raising wages for women, I know you hear that as the title of the episode and you just think, well, maybe if we just give women more money or it's just about the money, it's, it's deeper than that. You know, we're, we're trying to talk about healing, you know, systemic issues. We're talking about healing, you know, generational curses. You know, some people might use that term. And a lot of that comes to the money, Devin. You know, a lot of that comes down to it because, you know, I think about, you know, being in Mississippi and the Delta, like, you know, Como or Cleveland or something like that where people don't have opportunity, don't have the same money. There's no, you know, nothing like that. It's tough. I mean, if you really can't do anything. And one of the other things, uh, listeners that you may, you may have heard, cause I just got kind of got introduced to this term or this phrase occupational segregation. Now I had never even really heard of that. Um, but just the fact that certain occupations tend to segregate and have more men or more women or, you know, different races or whatever the case may be. Uh, and it's not every, no any fault to people. It's just kind of how it happens. Um, but like Devin had mentioned, uh, listeners, those ones that tend to segregate more towards men are going to be the ones that are paid higher. So, um, it's just so unfortunate that we're in this conundrum, Devin. Um, and, you know, there are clear ways to get out of it, but it's all about our, you know, our legislatures and our Congress and even our employers, I guess, have a part to do as well. So um, before, go, go ahead. I didn't know if you had something. My, my, I was about to set up a break, but go ahead if you got something. <laughs> no. no, I mean, I just wanted to mention too. I mean, yes, this, it has far reaching effects. And I think it goes back to kind of, what I was saying earlier about the the perception of like the WNBA and how it's seen as being less entertaining, less valuable. I think that happens oftentimes too with women in certain industries. It's just, it's not that they aren't capable, but the perception is that a woman just will not do the same, you know, value of work or as good of a job as a man would. I think that is a very real perception that seeps into how they are paid. And then if you want to have children, you're really going to feel the effects of the gender pay gap. Because if you have children, that means you cannot work those extra long hours that some of these jobs requires, which means you're going to pay a penalty. They're not going to give you those jobs because they're going to say, well, you have children, which means you can't completely dedicate yourself to the company. So therefore, we can't give you this promotion or this job and that pay that comes along with it. So you get penalized in that way, too. And that not only goes for mothers, but if you're a man who takes off for maternity leave, you're going to be penalized too. So there is just an overall perception and a bias, honestly, in the corporate world. We just reward people who are, quote unquote, in the office working extra long hours who are in front of us. We just assume that they are more valuable to the company than someone who maybe doesn't work all these extra hours, but they could be doing just as good of work as, as work but they just may have to go off and get the kids and pick them up and things like that. doesn't mean their work is any less valuable, but there's just a bias, I think, in the in the workforce where employers just tend to value people who work those extra long hours. And I think that is part of the problem, too, because you see it during COVID as well with the bias of remote workers versus those in the office. If you're not in the office and you're not visible to your supervisor, it's very likely you're going to miss out on promotions and advancements and pay raises because they feel they feel as though since you're not there, you're not doing as good a work as you could be if you were in the office. And I think the same goes for why, you know, women with children who want to have a family get penalized for doing that because they're just not perceived as being as dedicated to the company. So they get penalized for it. And I think that's a larger problem in society where we have to get out of the mindset that you have to kill yourself for a job to be rewarded. I think that's the wrong mindset. And it's starting to somewhat change with this generation who, 
you know, the Gen X, not the Gen Xers, the millennials and Gen Zers who are saying, you know what? I don't want to have to live to work. I want to work to live. You know, we're trying to change that mindset, but it's going to take a while. But like you said, it's not just employers, but Congress has to get involved as well to change some of these things and get employers to be more fair when they're handing out these salaries. Absolutely. Uh, There's a lot to be said in that, listeners. Uh, Mari, before we get out of this uh, segment here and get into some things about the future, you got any final thoughts on this segment? Um, I do think that, uh, like Devin said, it's important to to realize that there is definitely a segregation that happens within these occupations and how that is one of the biggest factors in the wage gap itself because, you know, more traditionally male jobs are getting paid more than traditionally female jobs because, like you said, females or women have to take more time off or caregiving or household and things like that. Just the traditional patriarchal stereotypes and standards that are engraved into our system makes it harder for women to have a higher income because employers do not want to pay people that have to take that time off. Um, So I think that is definitely um, one of the biggest factors that should be taken into consideration when addressing this issue, especially on top of the race issue. The the fact that black women um, in general are going to be paid less than a white woman or a white male just because of the racial and the sexism that is ingrained into our country. You know, what you said make me think, you know, Donald Trump and the Republicans should have been more concerned with this because, you know, this has a lot of ties to strengthening the family, you know, because a lot of the issues that, you know, women have who may be either single parent or if they aren't single parent, they have to be the one that that are taking care of the kids. Um, If they did have better wages, um, they could have more stability with their family. They, They wouldn't have to work multiple jobs and things like that. So it's, you know, whenever I hear things like that, it just makes me think that if people were really influenced in the right ways, they would actually take some serious attention for these issues because they would actually help people that you know are going to benefit from them because we even said that white women are not paid the same as white men. So plenty of stuff to cover uh, listeners within that segment, but we still got another segment to get to. Can't leave it on a bad note talking about all these pay disparities and wealth gaps and all this stuff like that. We got to give you some something positive. So make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to a scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, become a monthly patron. Go to blackagendapod.com and click the donate tab or click donate under the timestamps as you're listening to the podcast. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, let's get back into it. Our third segment talking about raising wages. And I wanted to start this segment off, listeners, for you with giving you some context because, you know, we've talked about on our podcast a lot about how America seems to be constantly battling with issues. You know, we've got so many laws on the books. We've already addressed these things, but we're still having to talk and fight for them today. The Equal Pay Act was the first act kind of around this sort of thing that we're talking about today. And it was actually written, passed and signed into law in, you know, 1963. So, I mean, that was quite some time ago. And women were making about 59 cents on the dollar for what men were making. So, again, like Devin said earlier, there's some progress. But like I said, this was 1963 when this was signed, equal pay. And we're still, you know, not at an equal pay you know, you know, 60 something years later, right now, listeners, we do have, you know, a bill that's slowly progressing its way through Congress. You know, it's the House has passed it. You know, unfortunately, like most, you know, good legislation, the Senate is going to kill it. Um, but let's <laughs> keep our fingers crossed. But the bill does a lot of great things. It makes it easier for employees to sue for wage discrimination. 
It prevents employers from retaliating against employees that take action on wage discrimination, as well as employees who disclose their own salary with coworkers for the purpose of determining pay disparity. The bill also prevents employers from asking prospective employees for information about their salary history and use that information to determine offered salary. And it even empowers the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and the Department of Labor to enforce these provisions, as well as direct both departments to do more research and outreach reach. Even President Biden on Equal Pay Day issued a proclamation, probably more presidential and symbolic, but hopefully you know, more, uh, last Tuesday. Other organizations like the National Organization for Women and Mississippi's Black Women's Roundtable are calling on state and federal government to make more uh, in the women's pay gap, make that more of a priority. You know, Devin, I hope that it can be more of a priority. I mean, we've got you know, a female that's our vice president. She's black. I mean, I don't know if they're paying her less than they pay, you know, other vice presidents, <laughs> but hopefully, you know, that's not going to be the case. But, you know, it's again, it's disheartening to see that, you know, the bill was, you know, some of these first movements was six, you know, 1963 and we're still having, you know, a slow you know, grind to equal pay, mm. but it is at least good to see that that gap is slowly closing. And I, well, I guess it's closing if you're Asian woman, cause they're making 82 cents on the dollar, but um, there's just gotta be something here to get Congress to realize that they've got to pass this because if they pass this, it's going to be something that will at least hold employers accountable. And if they're not held accountable, it's going to give employees some ammunition to go off of. I think that last part is the more powerful tool of it. I don't I think it's going to be really really hard to hold employers accountable for this because unless they have it written down somewhere that we're going to pay women less than men, it's going to be a really hard case to prosecute and say you just you you know instinctively did this. Like you meant to pay this you know, pay women less than what men, you know, men were doing the same work for. So I think that part is going to be hard. The thing that stuck out to me when looking in the Paycheck Fairness Act, Act was the, pa- the fact that it prevents employers from retaliating against employees who disclose and discuss their own salary. As, as you know, Maury may not know because she's in college, but you will get there in the corporate world. It is taboo to talk about your salary with your coworkers. Yes. It is, is very so important. Yes, <laughs> but it's extremely important to under, you know, it helps to kind of gauge where you are in the organization. But that is like something that could almost get you fired, honestly, if you discuss it or, you know, ask people for your salary. Employers get the right stirring company. up trouble or something. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what they're going to say. You're stirring up trouble by asking people for their salary or disclosing your own salary. And on top of that, you're saying that you're unhappy with your salary as well. That could get you out the door really quick. So the fact that it includes something like that to protect workers who discuss and disclose it, I think is a big thing that'll help just the discussion around discussing salary so people can just know. I think that's the first part is a lot of folks may just not know the difference. They may not even know within their own organization the differences in pay between men and women. And so that's that was the one thing that really stuck out to me when you talk about what the Paycheck Fairness Act can really do is that it could actually help with conversation around just, I mean, just discussing your pay uh, with your coworkers. And so, I don't know, Maury, you know, what's kind of your take? We, you know, looking at the the Paycheck Fairness Act, we already have the Equal Pay Act in law. It seems like it's really just in name only, but kind of what's your take on some of the things we could do uh, on the congressional level to actually enact some change? Um, I, I agree with your point about the the, Payness, the Paycheck Fairness Act, um, about being able to discuss your salary, um, because I didn't really think about that until that it actually reminds me of um, I had an instance um, when I worked at this. I worked at this mini golf place um, as a as a manager and I was a co-manager with you know a couple of other teenagers that were around the same age as me. And one of my coworkers, uh, I was, I had assumptions about him making the same, making more money than I was when we were doing the same level of work. And also he was working less hours than I was because I was working year round and he was only a seasonal employee. 
Um, but I was getting impressions that he was making more money because of what I was hearing from everybody else. But it was very difficult to actually make it a, a case or a, something to bring up to discussion because I didn't know how much money he was making. And I couldn't just ask him or he wouldn't disclose that or none of you know the higher up, nobody would actually disclose that to me. So as much as you know, I'm hearing like he said, she said, and I'm doing more work, there was never um, anything that I could actually be discussed. So I think that having this act and making it, you know, acceptable for employees to discuss things like that, especially women, because a lot of the times um, in the industry, women are not included into conversations or bigger picture conversations and things like that. It definitely would open up the conversation a lot more. Um, and I do think that it would be hard to hold employers accountable for the salary and making sure it's even and stuff just because there are so many factors that could go into somebody's salary. But I think having this act as something for um, employees to have, you know, on their backpedal to even like make the discussion is what really makes this act powerful. No, you're right. I mean, that's, and that's, Part of why we need to get it passed and, and kind of erase the taboo surrounding, you know, discussing pay. I understand that maybe some people who may be like, well, that's none of your business, how much he made, you know, but it's it's not like we're just trying to get into people's business. It's more so like you're trying to gauge where you are. It's almost like asking someone for like their GPA or something like while you're in college. Right. It's like you're just trying to get a gauge of where you are <laughs> within the organization. I mean, right. they can tell you or they cannot tell you. But the simple fact that the employer discourages it to the point where some workers may feel like, you know, I could lose my job if I go around asking people what they make, I think is the wrong way to go about, you know, the discussions surrounding pay. Um, one other thing that Congress could do, and we've talked about this a lot, Adrian, which is just raising the minimum wage. I mean, it hasn't been moved. I think it's what, seven twenty five. Still yeah. from 2008. Yep. So <laughs> it hasn't moved in over, what, 13 years now. And um, now that we have out of, I wouldn't say out of control, but we have inflation, um, it's even worse. And so raising the min minimum wage would actually do a lot to make up for the gender pay gap because women do make up a disproportionate share of low wage workers. So if you raise the floor to say $15 minimum, that would help a lot of uh female workers. And also one thing that could help a lot too is raising the tipped minimum wage. As you know, the tipped minimum wage, I think is like $2 and some change. I could be wrong, but it's, right. I mean, it's ridiculously low. And of course, you know, COVID hammered a lot of restaurants and other places. So female workers already are make up two thirds of tipped workers and they're 70% of food service and bartenders. So they had an extremely hard time during the pandemic. And then we're coming back it's time to raise the tipped minimum wage, but also raise the minimum wage. And both of those things can have, you know, a big effect on closing the pay gap. But again, you know, I mean, Bernie Sanders tried, Adrian. He pushed for the, you know, higher minimum wage. He was unsuccessful. And I, you know, I don't, I don't mean to lose hope in Congress, but I just don't see it on the horizon unless we get, a, you know, a Democratic Senate and House again in the White House. <laughs> I mean, you never know. I don't think we'll have that for uh, 2022 going into no. 2024. <laughs> I don't know if we'll have that, but you know, that's a fair argument. Um, and it, I think, I think about it on a broader context is when you raise the, you know, the floor, it helps everybody. It's not a black thing. It, it's not, it almost, it takes it away from even being a women issue and it's just an issue of poverty essentially. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of things have been said about, you know, certain industries or certain mom and pops and things like that can't afford to pay, you know, $15 an hour. Well, that's when you hit some other policy that maybe there's some sort of, I don't know, t corporate tax that makes sure that, you know, for small businesses, they can apply for grants to make sure that they can pay their employees $15 an hour. Bam. I mean, there's, there's a way to have policy. I just think people have bad governance. Um, <laughs> can't wait to get uh, in there, but um, uh, to, to get, you know, to get us back to something talking about the government, Devin talked about one of the first things, raising the minimum wage. 
raising tip wages. Um, I think, you know, whenever Devin and Mari listeners were talking about not, you know, the inability of, you know, laws to hold employees accountable, you know, that's one thing that I see too often with a lot of our laws in our books. And I find that's a, that's something our federal government has within the power to, to fix. I mean, you can have, you can create, you know, uh, additional departments to have watchdogs and, you know, people to go out and hold employers accountable. I mean, you can uh, have auditors. I mean, there, there's, I mean, th- we already have auditors. I mean, it's the, the fact of saying it's, it's, it's hard to figure out how to hold employers accountable when we've got an equal pay law that was written in 1963. It's shameful of our government that we're still having to do this because we should be able to hold employers accountable. Um, we should be seeing a lot more research and outreach, uh, other than just talking about this in March on equal pay day and during women's history month. Um, you don't really see a whole lot of the federal government talking about this sort of issue outside of opportunities where they can get an extra uh, vote here or there. It's got to be a priority. Um, listeners, this is we really bring that to context um, to kind of you know arm ourselves to make government listen. And even employers, Deb, and they've got to listen. I mean, I think that if we are going to try to hold them accountable, they still have to meet us at the table in the first place. Right. And I think the way to hold employers accountable is giving more freedom. I wouldn't say, yeah, I think freedom is the white word. Giving more freedom to the workers. The workers will dictate to the employers, I think, and in and by the who they choose to work for and who they, you know, who they choose to work for, I think is the biggest way you can impact employers by not having our best and brightest go work at certain companies because they have a history of not paying women equally. Or, you know, even if it was like, because think about it in this context, if you knew of a company that discriminated against black people, you wouldn't want to work there. Just like if you knew a company discriminated against women and didn't pay them fairly, you should not want to work there. That's not a company that, you know, has the same values that you do. So that's how I think workers can kind of rally together. And that's why we still need women and other allies to advocate for equal pay. You know, also learning negotiation skills for the best pay, you know, best possible pay and benefits is helpful because research has shown that women typically negotiate less for salaries and are more are less likely to even ask for a pay raise if you're at, a, at an existing company. And even pursuing higher paying jobs, education, promotions and leadership opportunities can help land women in better positions. So it's going to take all of us sort of to be an ally of the movement, but also just be a voice to say, hey, we need to make sure we're paying women equally across the board. What you know, factor in education and other things, but you cannot penalize her because she wants to have a child or she wants to have a family and be able to do things outside of work. And the last thing I'll you know mention too is that unions, unions seem to be a, seem to be a common denom- denominator around things that need to be made better. When you talk about benefits and healthcare for workers, you know, unions help you know, help increase that. And in this way, unions would actually could help reduce the gender pay gap. So just to give some context to that, women in unions are paid about 31% more than non-unionized women. And among racial and ethnic groups, Black, Hispanic, and white women in unions make about 34 to 40% more than their non-union counterparts. And so Women workers and unions are paid about 88.7% of what their male counterparts are paid, while women who are not in unions, uh, th- their share is about 81%. So it's about 7% difference. So unions can actually make a, you know, a real difference here. And so, Maury, when we're looking at how can we hold employers accountable and needing more women and allies and pushing for more unions, but also pushing our local leaders, whether that's your mayor, mayor your senator, your representative or your president, you know, we need everybody to sort of work together to get towards the equal, you know, equal pay for women. So just, you know, having going through all of this kind of what's your take as far as what you think we can really do to help, you know, get to where we're trying to go. Um, I do definitely think the first step is um, addressing all of this and making sure everyone is fully informed on what the wage gap is and how, how we can how we can tackle it. Um, like you said, as a woman, you know, having 
understanding, you know, the wage gap and learning negotiation skills and and maybe putting ourselves out there a little bit more to to ask for those um, raises or ask for those um, for asking for how much we should be getting paid and everything, asking more questions and stuff. Because I feel like a lot of times, at least with me, sometimes I'll think, okay, well, they're not going to take me seriously anyway. So let me just get what I can get. But, you know, maybe internally, the biggest step is crossing that line and being like, hey, this is what I deserve. And this is what I should be asking for. And when it comes to um, employers and on a more larger scale of what we can't control, I think the government does have a responsibility to um, to take action for this issue. And they do have a certain extent of power where we can make it easier for women to get these equalities as men. Um, so I do think that that definitely should be something that the government should be paying attention to and passing these acts and these laws um, and everything's like that so that we can address this issue fully. You know, that's a great point. I mean, all of those, all the things you said were great. And it, it made me think a lot about the fact that, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure um, this is correct, but I think women are the most reliable voting base. I think, you know, I, I could be wrong, but I think white women in suburbia. <laughs> yeah. I think <laughs> they, they, they vote more than, you know, than anybody else. I'm just like, this is this should be an issue for midterms. Like you know, if you want better wages, you know you need to vote this way or that way or whatever. It's like it, it's an issue that I feel like is so like it's it's or, or if we talk about low hanging fruit, like this is low hanging fruit because it's not like it's something that you've got to try to figure out so much about like how you're going to fund it or the ramifications or what it's going to impact down like, you know, 50 years down. It's going to be progress for everybody. If you raise wages, it's not like this is going to be something where you've got to take some sort of, you know, cost benefit analysis. Cause there's, there's not, I mean, yeah, there's a cost to employers, but employers have, you know, for decades have been getting more profits and, and revenues than their employees. Uh, and at some point they should, be making sure that their employees have a good, you know, cost of a uh, uh, good livable wage. So I'm glad that we're having this conversation about what's happening here um, because it's important uh, listeners, whether you're uh, a woman or not, um, because you might end up being married to someone that's a woman and I guarantee you, you want them to have equal wages or you might have women in your family, which I'm sure everybody does. And, you know, women with lower wages might have to borrow from you more. So if they had higher wages, you may not have to get mad at those cousins who call you asking for money or whatever. So um, it's full circle. Just, yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I, just I, say, <laughs> I would say, too, just to your point about, you know, it should be a, a more urgent problem. I think it's it's like it's, it's a transparency issue. It's like it's hard to see it because the data while it's there is not obvious. It's like there's no way for you to go and Google a company and see the discrepancy in pay amongst men and women. But if we had a tool like that, that I think would be able to, you know, show it and visualize it in a way where it's real. I think some people, you know, if you're in suburbia, you have a nice house, you got a decent car, your family's doing well, you're not scrap scraping for change every day and living paycheck to paycheck. I think it's easy to go on believing you're being paid fairly. There's no way to know if you can't ask your employee, you know, you know, your coworkers and your employer is not going to tell you that. So it's just like, it's, it's like a transparency issue. It's there, but it's just, I don't know. It's just like, a, you know, it's leaking beneath the surface, but it's just hard for people to, to know I'm being unfairly paid right. or I'm being, you know, I'm missing out on 18% of my pay or something. I think it also is like, uh, there's a lot of misconceptions around the whole topic in general of like the wage gap um because i know maybe like in like the like the 2010s when the feminist era was really like bumping and a lot of people were talking about the wage gap and everything like that there was a lot of misconceptions around it where people kind of took it as women should be getting paid more not necessarily as women should be getting paid what they deserve um so i think that by addressing it in a whole, like more, in a more concise way and letting and helping other people understand, you know, the issue at hand and what we're trying to accomplish is definitely like 
the first step to making sure something actually gets done and people actually start talking about it. Yeah, it's almost as if employers got together and colluded to say, we're not going to release all these salaries. You got to have organizations like Glassdoor and different yes. things like that to, <laughs> you know, get insight from people who worked at the company to know what's going on. Um, because we have a law that, you know, the, the EPA uh, that we were talking about earlier forbids employers from paying men and women different wages or benefits for doing jobs that require the same skills and responsibilities. So that's forbidden by law. But how much does that really I mean, happen? <laughs> you know, it's, you know it, we, that's why we're talking about this, listeners. And we appreciate you for uh, listening to this conversation. We're not going to let you go just yet, but we are going to give you a break. Um, we got to make sure that we let you know what's happening in the future with the Black Agenda podcast. So make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share, and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So, as always, we like to leave you with giving you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the show. So, we had another, we had a fantastic conversation today. And we have more coming. So the next time you hear me and Adrian will be this Saturday, March 26th. It'll, that'll be weekly roundup number 10. And again, the weekly roundup is our chance to bring you all the news from around the country and sometimes even the world. So we give you our take on what's happening. So make sure you tune in on Saturday, March 26th. That'll be weekly roundup number 10. Coming up after that, the following Tuesday, March 29th, we'll have another regular episode. As you know how we always do it, we'll have another great guest, another great topic. So make sure you tune in on March 29th for our next episode. So two great, you know, two great episodes are coming. You had a great one today. Tune in on Saturday, March 26th for weekly roundup number 10. And then tune in after that on Tuesday, March 29th for our next regular episode. And so me and Adrian really appreciate it when you download and listen to the show. Obviously, if if you stuck with us this far, you're enjoying what you're hearing. But there actually are some other ways that you can help us out besides just listening to the podcast. And Adrian's going to let you know how you can help us out. Absolutely, listeners. There is a way for you to let us know in a monetary value that you appreciate what we're doing. Um, you appreciate what we're trying to build here. You appreciate the the vision that Deborah and I have displayed over four seasons. I mean, it's 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 a lot here. I I I try to you know use this opportunity to paint the vision for why the Black Agenda Podcast exists and for where the Black Agenda Podcast is going. And in doing that, it's about showing you how you fit into that picture and how you can make all of that possible for us. All you gotta do is go to our website, blackagendapod.com. Or while you're listening to us right now, under the timestamps, there's a donate tab that you can click on. When you click on those donate tabs, they're going to take you to our patron page where you'll be able to give on a monthly basis and you'll be able to get on a monthly basis. So it's like you give and you receive, you know, it's a full circle. The world's a better place when you do that. So like I said, go to blackagendapod.com or while you're listening, scroll down in the timestamps and click on the donate tab. The other thing we like to do is mention our charity of the month. And for March, we're talking about the Common Ground Foundation. The Common Ground Foundation empowers and uplifts youth from high potential communities to become future leaders. They have programs that focus on character development, civic engagement, health and wellness, technology, generational wealth, entrepreneurship, career exploration, creative creative expression, and even leadership. It was founded by entertainer Common and his mom. They provide a holistic curriculum that encourages youth to achieve academic excellence while inspiring them to realize their dreams and create an impact in the world. They come to them as dreamers, but emerge as dreamers and believers. An awesome, awesome little tagline at the end for a great organization. Like I said, that's the Common Ground Foundation. Go check them out. But if you're going to give, we always say give to us first because we're up and coming, growing. We're not entertainer common because uh, he's got money to give to the foundation. But like I said, blackagendapod.com. I know you've heard it many, many times, but I'm going to keep saying it, blackagendapod.com or 
under the timestamps, click on the donate tab. Exactly. And I'm going to say blackagendapod.com again, <laughs> just to let you know that you can go to blackagendapod.com forward slash news after you get done donating and read about some other things that are happening. So we now have a news portion of our website that's called Our Voice. So if you go to blackagendapod.com forward slash news, you'll see plenty of articles that have been written by our, by our very talented interns like Miss Maury Johnson, who was on the show today. She's written some really, really good articles that you should absolutely check out. So go to blackagendapod.com forward slash news to check out all of Maury's content as well as our other interns. Uh, There's some great, great things that they're writing about. Go check it out and also leave some feedback and let them know what you think about it. The other thing you should be doing is following us on social media. You can find us at Black Agenda Pod is our handle. So we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So make sure you like, share, and follow us there and keep up with the show when we are not here talking to you on the podcast. And we want to give another thanks to our, our special guest today, Ms. Maury Johnson. Again, she is one of our journalist interns. So you can find a lot of all of her work for us on our website, which is, again, I'm going to say one last time, blackagendapod.com forward slash news. Um, so make sure you check out her content. And we thank her for coming on the show to talk to us. So we appreciate you listening and staying with us all the way to the very end. We're going to catch you on Saturday, March 26th for weekly roundup number 10. And then our next regular episode is coming to you on Tuesday, March 29th. So until then, we'll catch you next time. Thank you.